All right. With that amazing intro, we read Acts 2, 22 to 32, which says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would see or set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Let's sing together. In Christ alone my hope is found He is my light, my strength, my song This cornerstone, this solid ground Firm through the fiercest drought and storm What heights of love, what depths of peace When fears are still, when striving cease My comforter, my all in all here in the love of Christ I stand In Christ alone who took on flesh Fullness of God in helpless babe His gift of love and righteousness Scorned by the ones he came to save To all that cross as Jesus died The wrath of God was satisfied For every sin on him was laid Here in the death of Christ I live His body lay, light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again, and as he stands in victory, sin's curse is lost, it's grip on me, for I Precious blood of Christ 
Chasing light, no fear in death This is the power of Christ in me From last first cry to final breath Jesus commands my destiny No power of him, no scheme of man Can ever pluck me from his sin Till he returns, calls me home Here in the power of Christ I stand No power of hell, no scheme of man Can ever pluck me from his hand Till he returned or calls me home Here in the power of Christ I stand Psalm 16, a victim of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places indeed. I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the chance to gather with these friends. Um, we miss being together, but thank you that we are able to see each other's faces, hear each other's voices. Pray that you would unite us uh, in one spirit, that you would uh, bring us together around your word and the wisdom of it. Pray that you would teach us from your word today, that you would give us a deep and abiding hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'll never forget the first time that I saw a dead body. Um, there was a, I worked in an independent living home, and there was a lady there I'll call Gladys. And she was known to everybody for some interesting uh, reasons. She always had to be with a man. Uh, she would always uh, be going on dates, and she would have conflict uh, with other people in the uh, in the independent living home over, you know, which of the single men uh, liked her versus liked them. It was uh, in many ways like being back in high school again to watch it all happen. And uh, she was somebody who you could describe as um, as kind of you know vain and immature. Uh, she would get very angry uh, when things didn't go her way. She would get into arguments with friends. But the biggest thing was this desire or need for a man. And one day, I was, uh, I was her waiter. I was a waiter here at this facility. 
and uh, a, a very strange thing happened where she showed up to dinner wearing just an insane amount of jewelry, all, all kinds of necklaces and bracelets, and it was, it was strange. It was very confusing. Why is she wearing all of this? And at one point, I walked out to her table, and I had just delivered the food, and there was a scream and a cry, and I looked back, and she died. She, um, her head fell back, and she was dead. And it's as if she knew that it was going to happen, and she had brought all of her most valuable things and uh, you know, put everything on um, because it was the end. And of course, the jewelry remained in the room and had to be taken off of her before her body was taken away. The men that she liked were still there, but Gladys was gone. I think about that in comparison with the, with the most recent death I've observed, and that was of my Aunt Judy. And my Aunt Judy would never have claimed to have done all the right things in her life. She had made many mistakes, many of the same mistakes as Gladys, frankly, in her younger years. And, uh, and she had come through a lot of that. She had learned a lot of things, and later in her life she had... Um, she had matured, she would changed, and she would really come uh, before Christ, who she'd always acknowledged but hadn't potentially submitted to. And she had very much um, consigned that her life was, was in God's hands. And as she lay in her bed uh, dying, I asked her just a simple question, I, and I really meant it. I, her house is over in Bisbee, and I, I knew I could drive down there in a couple hours, and I said, is there anything you need? Can I bring you anything from your house? And she looked at me, and she kind of had a funny look on her face, and she said, you know, Andy, I hear I can't take anything with me. And she kind of laughed and had a little smirk on her face. See, Psalm 16 teaches us how to die with a smirk on our face as opposed to dying while clutching the treasures that we can't take with us. My Aunt Judy died. It was painful. It wasn't easy. I'm not saying it was just like no problems. Easy does it. It wasn't. But she kind of was able to smirk and laugh and say, you know what? Nothing I have here is going to be going with me. Now, of course, Psalm 16, for those of you who've study the scriptures a little bit, and maybe even if you haven't, you might recognize in here some things that seem to be kind of central messages of Christianity. And Psalm 16, pretty much everyone agrees, uh, points forward to Jesus. And we know that because both Peter in Acts 2 and Paul in Acts 13, and I read to you Acts 2 at the beginning, they both reference it and apply it to Jesus. And, and really, um, as with many of the Psalms we've studied, it speaks of two things of things that are too lofty for its, for its author to fulfill. And that's what Peter was saying in Acts 2. He said, you know, this same David, his tomb is with us to this day. We know that his body saw corruption. This must be about someone else. But that said, it's not merely about reinforcing the doctrine of resurrection um, in this psalm, though it, it does reinforce that. It's a psalm that teaches us that Resurrection to come will change the way we view and experience life now. John Piper, 
a well-known pastor who's now retired from, uh, he had a church in Minneapolis, has a very helpful synopsis of the point of Psalm 16, which I think really drives this home. He says this, God will bring you body and soul through life and death to full and everlasting pleasure if he is your safest refuge, your supreme treasure, and your sovereign Lord and trusted counselor. God will bring you, this is your hope, body and soul, through life and death, to full and everlasting pleasure if he is your safest refuge, your supreme treasure, your sovereign Lord, and your trusted counselor. So, of course, um, and obvious if you consider it, the order goes as follows. When you live for and with and aided by the one who created you and gives you life, then you can confidently approach life and death with deep and anchored hope. Let's look at the key concepts now in the psalm. Psalm 16, 1 through 2 says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. And here David, the psalmist, calls to God for preservation. And this is preservation of his life. Preserve my life. We know from the life of David that there were times when his life was in danger. We know that he aged and he got old. And so he's really calling out, preserve my life. And for what? It says here in 1 and 2 that he has no good apart from God. So you have to imagine that if he is saying right in the same thought, I have no good apart from God, then he wants more of God. He must. That must be what he wants preserved about his life. Verses 3 and 4 say this. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And saints, of course, this would refer to those who love God most of all. And David is saying, as I long to know more of God, those who also have this in common with me are delightful to me. It says, the sorrows of those who run after another God will multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. And, and this is speaking of idolatry. A, a question to ask about verse 3, though. Do, do we feel this way about the other people in the world who love God most? I think something I've been really plagued by lately is it's difficult to enjoy Christians for me sometimes, if I'm being honest. And a good question to ask is this, like, why is that happening? Why are there so many divisions between us that make this difficult? One reason might be that not all that claim the name of Christ and go to church are indeed delighting in God most of all. Idolatry really gets in there and messes this up because sometimes there are things we love more than Christ and more than one another, and we begin to fight about these things. And that exposes something about us. It exposes an idolatry that either might mean that we aren't Jesus' people at all, or it might mean that we need to repent of something. And that could go on in my life or in anyone's life. It's a division that makes it hard sometimes to delight in the other saints. Another good question to ask is, especially when you're aiming at yourself, what is it about me that causes me to delight in the company of others that, that share another perspective of mine outside of Christ 
more than I delight in being with those who love Christ. What is it about me that delights in the company of somebody who shares a different perspective other than Christ as central more than I delight in the company of someone who loves Christ most? And what keeps that from being at the forefront of my relationships? Three and four, verses three and four, are contrasting the one who worships the one true God as opposed to one who runs after another God. And of course, in the scripture, all other gods are called idols. Um, Elsewhere, they're declared to not be gods at all. They're pseudo-gods. They're standing gods, but they're not actually gods. They receive our worship, but they're unworthy. I think of the men that Gladys ran after when I worked in the independent living home. One was kind of a little, a little player. He was, was very interesting to watch, like an 85-year-old version of the 20-something dude or girl many of us chased after in our life or are still chasing right now. He was the grown-up version of that, it, which means it never ends. It, this, these people always will be. There always will be these tendencies. It doesn't go away. And if you train yourself to run after these types of people, that make you feel special, and often they'll make a lot of other people feel special, which is what makes people like Gladys so angry at the other women in the room. If you train yourself to run after these type of people, it'll never end because these people don't grow old and just become faithful and mature. In fact, they usually don't. They can They can, through a difficult process of redemption and a difficult process of repentance, but people who are running after gods, other gods might run after them their entire life. And what does it mean that you run after such kinds of people? Gladys was starved for feeling special. She would soak it in. Even though the little man that she liked who lived in the independent living home, he would actively sit and dine with other women right in front of her. He would like flaunt it in her face and she would be angry. Why did she do that? Because she had an idol and he was merely the statue. She worshiped that feeling, that drug, that thirst that said, tell me that I matter. But the object, the man always let her down and sometimes rubbed it right into her face. So on the day of her death, she piled on every ornament that men had given her in her life and probably the ones she treated herself to in their absence, every emblem of being special, of having value, and she clung to them as she breathed her last. And I assume left them to her children who probably don't love them very much because probably the men who gave them to them are the ones who destroyed their families. It's not hard to imagine the damage when your mother has run after men her whole entire life. So these were not treasures at all. Oh, the multiplying sorrows of those who run after other gods. That's what Psalm 16 is saying. The multiplying sorrows. In your microchurch, ask yourself, what are your functional gods? What do you long for the most? What do you cling to? 
What do you not want to lose when you die? Or what do you wish you had so bad that you want to die because you don't have it? We must name these things and call them what they are. They are our other gods, our idols. Are they all wrong? Is it okay to fall in love or collect some necklaces? They're not all wrong. It's the degree to which you love them. Idols are merely good things, desecrated by being treated as if they are ultimate things. Verse 5 and 6 say, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And here is presented before us two sides of the same coin. On the one hand, we must choose God as our portion, as the one we believe is best. The portion in the cup is imagine there's a table set before you filled with fine food and fine wine and you can't possibly eat it all or take it all in, so you have to decide what is best. What will I choose? And there is something to working through that in your heart and mind. On the other hand, it is God who places our lines or our boundaries. It is God who holds our lot, and the lot is you know, like, a, like the roll of the dice, where you might say, this seems like I have a decision before me. It could go one way or the other. And the scripture is saying, it is the Lord who actually decides the roll of the dice. What feels like a, a gamble to you is a sure thing to God. And he leaves us his inheritance. You don't choose your inheritance. Your inheritance is given to you as a gift. This is a statement of one of the great conundrums of Christianity, our responsibility and God's sovereignty. And the answer is always both. You must choose who your heart loves the most and then realize that the one who's drawn all your boundaries and who works things out on your behalf and gives you an inheritance is God, and it is all of grace. The choosing, though, is accepting the lot that comes from God's hand and trusting that it is better than any other lie, any other God. My friend Eric from the village has an illustration he calls the table of decision. If you imagine a table with four sides, four chairs, and you come and sit down at that table every time there's a decision to be made, and to your right sits the enemy, and to the right and to the left sits Jesus. And as you, as you look at your options, the enemy and Jesus are vying for your heart. And the enemy will show you, here's something that you want. Here's what you can have. Oh, you're sad? You know, you could have this, this idol. You could have this thing. It will make you happy right now. This person, this drug, this possession, whatever it is, it will satisfy you right now. And Jesus is often saying to you, it's not true. I will give you pleasures forevermore, but you might suffer in this life. You will wait you will need to repent and turn and walk a difficult path. Narrow is the road that leads to life. And it is hard to make that decision. And there's another place at the table. And that's where your friend or your Christian community can sit and they can fight for you to advocate that you listen to what is true as opposed to what is false. God gives us 
Jesus and his word, that's where the word comes in. He gives us our community to help us discern, is this my idol or is this the Lord, my portion, my cup? Verses 7 through 9 say, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night, my heart instructs me. I've set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. This gets at the question, how do you change your idolatrous heart? And the answer is, you train it. And the scriptures would say this, you are pre-trained for idols and idol worship, in a sense. You are born in sin. Elsewhere, David in the Psalms will say that. Behold, I was born in iniquity. And we're steeped in it. Ever since Adam, we inherit it. I see this in every, every time I do premarital counseling. And, and of course, you all can see it in me too. But it's, it's there. It's in our family story. It goes back generation to generation to generation. There's never been one moment in our family's history where some idol hasn't had a hold on us. And the scriptures tell us that goes all the way back. All the way back. And so you can't coast. You have to train yourself. You have to train yourself out of it. The bookstore where I used to work, Gospel Supplies, had a slogan. And it's very simple. What goes into your heart comes out in your life. And there's some real truth to that. The Lord is your counselor. Know his word. Listen for his prompting. Listen to your Christian community who will help you discern when your heart is running after an idol with all of its might and when God is speaking. You need both. You need all of it. You'll find deep continuity in the word and in the Holy Spirit's leading through the church. And then... It says, even in the night, your heart will instruct me. I found this very interesting. I think, I think there's something to this that I've seen in my journey. I assume many of you have walked with Jesus for a long time do too. You'll discover even your unconscious ponderings, your dreams will be shaped and changed, or you'll be challenged in even your ponderings at night when you awake because this kind of training gets deeply embedded in your heart. And that kind of training leads to a change in feelings. So that someday, because of that training of your heart, you will begin to feel security, which you long for. And comfort, which you want deeply. And joy, these things that you want to feel come from being trained. What goes out or what goes in comes out. And sometimes I think we want the byproduct first. I, I know... I've thought this, and I've heard this many times. If I felt like God was changing me, I would keep walking. If I felt like I was secure, I would remain in him. But nothing in life works that way. Think about it. If you want to feel less anxiety about money, what do you do? Feel good about it? No. You save for years. And then once the savings account is built up, there is a peace that comes from knowing if your car breaks down, you've got money to pay for it. The training, the work leads to the feelings. If you want to feel like you know what you're talking about, when somebody challenges you, you want to know what you're talking about, all evidence shows us you study. 
probably for years. You don't get a feeling of knowing what you're talking about. Some people, we just have it, right? You have a feeling you know what you're talking about, and everybody knows you don't. But the feeling isn't really the substance of it. You know what you're talking about when you've studied deeply, and it comes out naturally. And similarly, if you want to feel less anxious about life and death, you root yourself for years in Christ and his kingdom purposes, you don't get the feeling without the process. Finally, 10 through 11, you'll not abandon my soul to shoal or the grave or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is the hope portion. The Holy One, this is pointing to Jesus, our soul's anchor. The firstborn, the scriptures will say, of many brothers and sisters who will live life anew. And now Jesus, see, he knows the pleasures forevermore. He is living it out, what we will someday taste. But remember, he descended to earth to suffer with us, and he knew the pleasures of being at the right hand of God before he came. So why bother? Why did he do it? Here's why. He did it for us, for you and for me. It means that this is very much our hope, that Jesus came to witness to the pleasures of knowing God and choosing him as our portion and our cup. He came to suffer for our idolatry as one who is truly innocent, and he came to make a way to the presence of God for those of us who do not deserve it. Truly an inheritance. Truly a gift. And he is there now, enraptured in the pleasures of peace and perfection. But the scriptures say he has gone there to prepare a place for us. The question is, is that where you want to be? With God? Or is there an idol that you are clutching so hard that it has become more important to you than to sit with God and to know him and be known? If it is, if you even have a little bit of like a mustard seed of desire, go with it. Train for it. Be trained by it. Press on to know him. And trust in his power to complete the work that he started in you. And increasingly, you will feel the peace that transcends all understanding. Pray with me one more time before we sing. Father, may it be so. For all of us, for I who speak these things, um, this is not an easy word. It is not what comes naturally. My heart runs after idols. My heart longs for every drink and every portion that is not you. And thank you that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. It shows us that which could make us stumble and fall and destroy us. But thank you that you in Christ have given us a way and a comfort and a help by your Holy Spirit. 
I pray that our lives would be changed, that we would taste of what we long for, but only in you. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea bills roll, whatever my love thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Satan's buffet, the trials that come. Let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and tested his own blood for my soul. my soul It is well It is well with my soul It is well with my soul
Thank you for the reminder that um, the things that we, we just tend to grab onto things. We tend to want want peace and we want control and we want happiness and we want to be able to put it in our own hands and hold it hold on to it, but we, we just can't. I pray that we would remember your love for us that invites us um, not just to let those things go, but to grab onto you. Um, the one thing that really will fulfill us, that we're created to be fulfilled by. Uh, I pray that during our groups this week, we, we prepare ourselves, uh, we examine ourselves to look at the ways we're trying to hold on to happiness and the ways we'd really be more fulfilled by holding on to you instead. For your glory. Amen.